What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast. Just won a series against the hottest team in baseball. Go figure. The Seattle Mariners could not take the series from the New York Mets. Two out of three games we take it. Ronnie Mauricio debut. Brett Beatty back up. We're playing September baseball. It feels a little bit different than last year, but still September is here. We're playing baseball. You guys know the drill. Make sure you're following us on all our social media at Mets Up on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Subscribe to the New York Mets YouTube channel so you can see the video version of this. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download, and subscribe. Back home for this one here, James, a little remote episode. How we doing? How we feeling? Doing good. Feeling better. This Mets Mariners series is kind of funny because there are a few times during this weekend where we went back and we talked about the last time the Mariners visited the Mets, and that was last year in May, the famous series where you uh, where Patrick Mazzica the home run off of Andres Munoz, and you said that you'd have to name your second-born son, first-born son Patrick, if you would do born. that. First-born, yeah, second's Albert. I forgot about Albert because our pool 700th home run when you were there. And I remember Darren from the Seven Line. He put you, you on TikTok with the Curb Enthusiasm music. And thinking back to that last year, just again to like paint the differences of these seasons, that was weirdly, I believe the first time all year the Mets actually had lost a series or at least lost a series at home. And now this year... The Mets have had not the best season and a, a little bit worse of a second half. While the Mar- Mariners have been the highest team in baseball, they've won 14 out of 17 just entering the game on Sunday, and the Mets take a series from them. So that's just baseball, Susan. It's kind of funny to think about where these teams are, where they were, and like and where they're going. Yeah, Mets are playing spoiler a little bit. I know we didn't take the series from the Rangers, but like even taking one from them kind of kind of messed them up a little bit, and they haven't really been playing good baseball. I think they've lost two to the Twins, right? I think they've lost two in a row, and I don't know what's going on on Sunday. But right now, the AL West, the Mariners are still in first place by half a game. But the Mets taking these these wins. I mean, the Astros have been playing terribly against the Yankees. The Rangers haven't been playing well. The Mariners kind of getting a little lucky, too, as well. Yeah, and it is funny also because think about that. Like, we played the series against the Rangers earlier this week. The Rangers have been one of the coldest teams, not just in the American League, but all of baseball over the last few weeks. They've been struggling to win games. And that series is the one we get close and they beat us. Now this one, the Mariners, just, it's funny. Baseball's funny. September is like this is the month where kind of anything can happen as the, the month does turn. And it's just it's just a weird season gets weirder and weirder and weirder. But what are you looking at? My neighbors. My neighbors are I'm jumping up and down. They got to be jumping off the couch right now. I, th- I got to go up there and I think talk to them today and just be like, hey, knock. I can hear everything that's going on upstairs, and it's not like just like a little walk-in. It's like jumping and running, a little little dribbling basketball every once in a while, shooting hoops. I don't know what it is, but it's it's tough to sleep. Yeah, personal saga for Mark, who is a nocturnal creature. His neighbors upstairs make a ton of noise, especially early on in the morning. So he's been dealing with that. Just a little you know sideshow for the for the podcast, but. Exciting things are happening in the Mets world on Friday as they called up Ronnie Mauricio to make his major league debut during uh, just for a September call-ups, along with Brett Beatty, as Mark said, being recalled, and Jose Budo coming back up to the club. So the, a lot of people were in attendance on Friday. Wayne Randazzo and Dontrell Wolves were there for the Apple Music game. Said hi to Sarah Langs hanging out down by the field. A lot of uh, a huge contingency of writers and media people all trying to get a, a piece of Ronnie for his first career game. We got there and saw batting practice, saw him hitting just ropes over the fence from both sides of the plate. Also saw Brett Beatty because he always takes – the most impressive batting practices uh, on earth. Ronnie also just wearing these super crispy, clean, pink New Balance cleats for his debut as well. Just good look, swagged out, and he came up really ready to play right away. Oh, 100%. I mean, the first at-bat of Ronnie Mauricio's career, he not only gets a hit, 
but he gets a double, 117.3 miles per hour, the hardest hit ball by a Met this season, hardest hit ball since 2021 by a Met, which is kind of crazy, and only four Mets have hit a ball at least 150 miles an hour since 2018. James told me to guess this one, so I know that Alonzo and Mauricio are going to be two of them. Mm -hmm. The other guesses, I mean, I'm going to go with, oh, did James McCann? Nope. Not Tommy Pham? Nope. If it was Tommy Pham, what wow. happened this year? And this was the hardest hit ball this year. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, once if this yeah, one's 117. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. But I, I I asked you to guess this because it's two guys who one of them should be obvious, but it's gonna be hard to guess, and one of them is going to be so impossible to guess that it's like not even funny. Was Ryan Cordell on here? Your no, boy? I wish. God. <laughs> I miss Ryan Cordell. Okay, I'm I'm gonna take two more guesses. I, Francisco Alvarez, was he one of them? He was not one of them. Wow, and I'm mi- I'm missing. Who could this be? One's I, really I'm, obvious. Like in the text, I'm gonna be really upset you don't get it. The other one is not really obvious. Gonna be really funny when you, when I tell you. Uh, let's go with DJ Stewart. No, yeah, I think think. Okay, who is think it? Back a few years ago, I extended this. I extended this 2018. That's why I'm asking you. A few years ago, I, Cespedes was he one of them? He's one of them. Yes, that's the obvious one. Nice. Okay, and I'll then one, the not so hard more one. Just for the weird one. One more guess. Uh, I'm going to go with Aaron Altair. It's not Aaron Altair. We were looking for Carlos Gomez in 2018. Oh, Carlos Gomez. Similar yeah. time, though, as Aaron Altair. So exactly. there's a little yeah, crossover same, there. Same vibe. I'm, ba- I'm back on Baseball Savant right now because I want to get the date it was. Because I, wa- I want to say it was that early season home run hit against the Nationals. That was like the mo- That was like an epic moment. But I'm checking back right now. Yeah. I mean, speaking on Ronnie's hit, though, the ball jumped off the bat. We were there. We were sitting in left field. And when he hit it, me and you both like looked at each other and, and screamed like holy and then uh, profanity. It was noticeably hit harder. 117 like smacked each other. At that point in time, that was harder than Ronald Acuna or Aaron Judge had hit a ball this season. Acuna uh, last night hit one 121. So that was quickly, quickly yeah. dispelled and taken away. But I mean, just impressive what Ronnie Mauricio can do from a sheer strength standpoint. Yeah, and you even kind of saw it like the, how hard he hit the ball, the trajectory being so obscure, it kind of baffled Teoscar Hernandez trying to field the ball in right field, where he kind of like took a half a step in, and then he just froze because like I think it's coming really, really hard and hit the wall with like a very special thump that you don't really hear very often for balls off the wall. And also, you said it was the hardest hit ball by a Met this year. That is true. This is the hardest hit ball by a Met since August 19th, 2021. So we're going back two Thanks. full years before since a Met has hit the ball at least 117.3 miles an hour. And it's you get you kind of see the physical tools on display for Ronnie Mauricio, and you do kind of see why he was such a heralded international free agent, why he was such a heralded prospect when he first came up, why he's had so much buzz around him for the last year plus as he's really gotten himself back on track in the upper minors. And it's just oozing with potential. There's so much here that could happen. He's such a he's such a lanky, tall, talented, strong ball of clay that could probably become a pretty feared power hitter if things go well. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about his series a little bit more as we go on, but he looks very ready. He looked very calm. It didn't look like the moment was too big for him. Sometimes these guys get called up. They get a little, like, in their head. You're in New York playing in for a big team. There's a lot that could be going on that just makes it feel a little bit more, uh, like there's more pressure. But Ryan Mauricio seemed calm, confident. He got to second base. He took his helmet off before he even touched the base, put his arms up. I think he blew a kiss to his family, started pointing to the Mets on the shirt. Like, Electric City. Electric City. The fans in the ballpark were super excited. And the Ronnie Mauricio debut, it's finally happened. He's here, and I can't imagine he's going anywhere anytime soon. No, it doesn't feel like that. There was also a cool moment in that that bat that got him to the 117-mile-an-hour double that 
was, I think, almost, I'm not going to say it's more impressive because having at the time the 11th hardest hit ball in all of baseball is like incredibly impressive. Not much you could do before and at bat will do anything for you. But it was just the fact that Mauricio, the kind of wart against him, and the thing is he struggles apparently with, and the data backs up for the minor league, the swing decisions, and being able to identify pitches out of the strike zone and lay off them. And he was facing Logan Gilbert, who has two really good breaking balls and a good fastball. He's a, good, he's a really good pitcher, someone who has really ascended to being a, a clean, like top 30, top 35 pitcher in all of baseball as you get ready for your rankings in a few months. But Gilbert started him off a, a nod to the rookie who has a lot of talent with a slider, right? Like just drops it over the middle for a call strike. And then he dropped a curveball below the knees that Ronnie ended up taking. This was 1-1. And then he threw a slider low and inside in the strike zone that Lonnie took, Ryan took a big hack on and he whiffed on it. So then now the pitcher, I'm not going to say Logan Gilbert's a veteran, but I think this is his third or fourth year in the league. So he's becoming a yeah. veteran, much more veteran than Ryan Mauricio. Is up 1-2 on a hitter in this first at-bat, his entire major league career, playing in New York in front of the home crowd with a lot of hype around him. And after he threw him a slider that he swung and missed on inside the zone, he dropped one about three or four inches lower it's still low and inside, but below the knees. And Ronnie took like a little, a kind of a little jolt at it, and he stopped and he laid off. And then that got him the 2-2 pitch that he hit for the double up the gap. And I think that is a critical moment for Ronnie Mauricio to be able to take a deep breath, understand what the understand situation more than the moment, and take a, hard, take a tough pitch and then do his damage. And then later in the yeah. game, he hit another 100-mile-an-hour single. Yeah, I mean, I think... We talked about a lot on the podcast throughout the season about like what could be keeping Ryan Mauricio down, what he has to work on, right? And a lot of it was swing decision, patience, just plate discipline in general. One thing he doesn't really do that much is strikeout. His strikeout rates dropped this season, which was always great. But he's probably never going to be a guy that walked. And we even saw it in game three where he had a 3-0 count, and he, he took a hack. He took a hack, put the ball in play, hit it hard. But I don't even think like it's as much as like Ryan Mauricio can't walk like Javier Baez a little bit, where Javier Baez has like some horrible swing decisions, chases the worst pitches in the world, looks disinterested at times at the plate. I think it's Ronnie's just uber aggressive and kind of just jumps on pitches. If you make a mistake, it seems like he's going to try his best to make you pay for it, which would lead to maybe why he's not as patient. Because what we've seen, obviously, there's going to be times where you chase balls out of the zone. But I've been impressed so far with his plate discipline. Yeah, and the thing about Ronnie is that I think the hit tool is probably a little underrated just because there was always so much swing and miss in his game. It's kind of like a battle going on in the scouting and data world right now between whether a guy's a good hit tool just because they put the bat in the ball a lot and spray it a lot or whether they have a good hit tool based on just how much damage they can do on pitches inside the zone compared to laying off pitches outside the zone. I think that does still remain to be seen with Ronnie. He's going to get a steady diet of breaking balls. There's no doubt about it, and we're going to see a lot of that, even just the first two games because Savant hasn't updated for – for uh, Sunday's game yet, he got 45% breaking balls and only 35% fastballs, which is a little bit twisted off the season, uh, the league averages. But there's just, again, there's so much fun to be had here with Ryan Mauricio's profile. I think a lot that can happen. I really hope he gets an extended run over these next few weeks and we can see everything that happens. Because he also looked pretty good in the infield. He spun a couple double plays. Yeah. We're going to talk about it from Sunday. But him and Physical Indoor turned a really great double play when Tyler McGill was in trouble and Julio Rodriguez. And you could just see that he has that, you know, that shortstop's arm at second base and just how big he is. He took he took a twist and just threw a seed to P. Alonso at first base. Just came in hot and so many physical tools here. Like baseball is one thing, but when you get a guy who like again looks like an NFL wide receiver out there, like you can really you could just salivating thinking about the potential. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers is watching the Mets game going, man, I'd like to throw it to him across the middle. He, he gets some yards <laughs> as long as he can learn the playbook. Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers needs to trust his receivers. We know that, but. Other highlight of Friday's game, because it turned out to be a real, real tightly contested one, a pitcher's duel. And that's because Kodai Sanga was completely lights out for the Mets again, turning into an ace before our very eyes, set the tone early in the game yep. where 
He gave JP Crawford fastball, goes for, goes for, struck him out in three pitches. JP would get him for a home run next at bat. Had a, did have a pretty big series here, but just felt that early on. Nikola Sang would have it. His control, command wavered a little bit, especially with his fastball in the middle innings, but it still never even got close to causing a problem for him. Wound up going seven innings, five hits, only one earned run on that JP Crawford solo home run, two walks, 12 strikeouts. 12 strikeouts tied his career high, third time he's done that this season. And that's now back to back games for Kodai with double digit strikeouts. And what's funny, too, is watching this in the ballpark, there were like times where we're like, oh, man, he's just not as sharp as he has been in the past. Like something just feels like it's a tiny little bit off. And then you look at the box score at the end of the day, you're like, oh, he we, we thought he was off. And he, he struck out 12 and gave up five hits and one run against one of the hottest teams in baseball. Like he's just been everything and better. And we got to speak to him uh, last week when we did the DJ Stewart interview, which you guys can see on YouTube and on our podcast feed. The Kodai Senga one should be coming out, I assume, at some point this uh, upcoming week. But just being able to talk with him about like the adjustments he's made and how he's been feeling about New York. I mean, the guy is comfortable, and it seems like he's really starting to figure things out and like understand what it takes to be a great pitcher in the major leagues. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you guys hear me say it every episode, but that big adjustment was him turning to this cutter and using it a lot more. This was the least he'd thrown in about a month and a half. It's kind of, I guess, kind of get away from it. And you guys will hear that in the interview, him talking about when he's using that color more and when he's using it less. But that pitch up top with his fastball and his ghost fork, three-headed monster has just completely changed him as a pitcher. His walk rate's fallen. No. His K rate's gone up. He hasn't allowed more than three earned runs in two and a half months, which is just an insane thing to think about since he faced the Cardinals, which I say every single time, but he still hasn't done more than that. It's also now five straight starts with Kodak completing at least six innings, which is something that we thought was going to be the biggest hurdle for him to climb at the beginning of the year, and now he's doing it regularly. It's down to the sixth lowest earned run average in baseball, the sixth highest strikeout rate in baseball. It's becoming a little ridiculous how good he is. Yeah, no, he's he's great, 100%. Like, he's going to get some Cy Young votes. Uh, Codace, love to have him on the Mets. And then kind of just putting a little bow tie on this one, Brandon Nimmo, home run, 20th home run of the season, five home runs in his last, I think, like 18 or 20 games. He's really been swinging the bat well, especially against the Mariners, had a nice series. And then Vogie, the guy. The man, I mean, he's been great ever since that mental health break. We said it every episode pretty much since then because he has been good. He's been noteworthy to talk about. Go ahead, single scoring Lindor. Just good stuff all around. Good win for the Mets. The kind of thing that, like, I'm sure a lot of us Mets fans saw were like, man, like, if the record was a little bit different, like, this win would have made even more sense of just, like, September baseball, playing the Mariners, big game, and the Mets were just better. And it was genuinely just a fun night in the ballpark. Like, it was a big crowd there. I think a lot of it just because holiday weekend, last Friday before school starts for all the kids out there. And Ronnie's debut, really nice weather. It was it was a good vibe, black jerseys. People were into it. It was a very fun night to be at the ballpark. Also, shout out listener Emily. Hung out with her for the last few innings. Longtime listener of the show. Great, great friend. Someone who's, someone who's, someone who's made us laugh a couple of times. Yeah, a few times. A few times for sure. Game one was great. Moving on to game two, of course, this was not the one that they ended up winning. We were also a little, a little probably more focused on college football as it was opening weekend. James had a big game, Ohio State versus Indiana. And as you guys know, him and John made a side bet. John is not here because he was he was working today. He was at City Field. So we don't know if he's going to be joining us or not. But Ohio State versus Indiana, James and John made a, a little bet, a little friendly bet for the podcast. And it was, what, minus 30 and a half for Ohio State, right, James? Yep. Minus 30 and a half, Ohio State had to cover whoever loses the bet, because of course John's an Indiana guy, James is a Buckeye, whoever loses the bet has to do a wet podcast the next time we are in person, and James, what was the final score of that game? Um, Buckeyes only won by 20 points, and again, since you guys, we know how much you guys hate when we talk about college football, I'm going to start the timer right now, two minutes to talk about college football, so you guys can just hammer that 15 second button if you want, but 
Ohio State looked like trash in this opening week against Indiana. It was terrible. A few yes. Buckeye listeners out there are gonna are gonna be appreciating this segment. Shout out Sam, but it was just terrible. It was a terrible game. Ohio State is no quarterback play. It feels like a mid major now. We're on the same level as these schools like Penn State and Notre Dame, who have been majors for a very long time. Texas, these other mid majors in the country, and it's a shame. It's a real shame because it looks like it's gonna be a bad season for the Buckeyes. First in a long time. It's also so bittersweet that Ohio State extended a, a nation high. 29 game winning streak over Indiana hasn't lost Indiana and in like <laughs> since the 1990s and it's still, they couldn't cover. So I still have to lose this bet to John and have to go take a, like uh, take a full shower in the stadium before the podcast is going to be so terrible <laughs> next Thursday after the diamondback series. And you know, Ohio state Trevion Henderson looked like he was running in mud. Kyle McCord was inaccurate. He couldn't push the ball down the field. He didn't look confident. Devin Brown, who apparently was going to split time, barely even got to throw. When he did get a throw, he looked incredibly unimpressive and small. And he was wearing number 33. <laughs> I know, I know a lot of you guys aren't Ohio State fans, but if you're a fan of any football team in any level ever, high school, Pop Warner, NFL, college, you see a guy take the snap as number 33, you're like, that's not a quarterback. What's he doing taking the snap? Is that a fullback? No. Is that a linebacker? Is that a backup receiver? Is that a guy in the practice squad? I don't know what it is. So really disappointing Saturday, even though, like again, like James shut up, Ohio State won by 20. You're talking about how disappointing it was. Yeah, but, that's kind of where I want to go. Yeah, yeah, no, but it's just it sucks that like you're a team that was mill, mill, I don't know, milliseconds away from winning a national championship. And now you're a team that's going to be stuck with the mid-majors like Penn State and Notre Dame. Yeah, no, you'll be you'll be playing in an insignificant bowl game, really, with me and South Carolina as well, because losing to North Carolina first, not easy. What do we got on that timer, by the way? How much can I talk about the, the Gamecocks here? 19 seconds left. 19 seconds. Offensive line, defensive line did not show up. Spencer Rattler looked great. Shane Beamer's still my coach, but stunk to lose that one, especially against the fake Carolina, which is the North Carolina Tar Heels. We all know the real Carolinas in the South. Time. Beautiful. That was good timing. Great job. And that's our two minutes talking about college football. We're going to set that timer every episode now because we know how much you guys hate it, but we still want to talk about it because we're going to be watching a lot of it. But game two against the Mariners, we had you know two TVs going. We're watching South Carolina and the Mets at the same time. Shout out. Shout out to the Roebling Sports Club. Great spot to watch sports in Brooklyn. Yes. David Peterson, another just another very David Peterson start. It's the only way you can describe these from now on it's because it's just so weird. I, yeah, I, don't, I, I've you know paid a lot of attention to a lot of other baseball, but I don't really see any other pitcher doing what David Peterson does every time out, where he misses so many bats and has moments where it looks like guys cannot touch him, but then it gets really inefficient and guys just start teeing off on him or gives up walks. This game, no walks, no walks on him, but a few few long balls. Teoscar Hernandez hit one and. Something that was cool in this game, just looking for the little adjustments that David Peterson's making as we move along here this season, getting his extended run. Changeup, different changeup this time out. A couple, a hmm. little bit harder, and it was moving a lot more. Four more inches of drop and two more inches of fade on it than the season averages. And it got a lot more whiffs in this game. And the slider also looked very good. Threw that one harder as well and a little bit tighter, but still with some drop. So interesting. Four innings pitch, four earned runs is not a start that you're going to be writing home about, but just trying to look inside of what he's doing and seeing the little adjustments that are happening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazon's 
of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. I think we were talking about it at the bar. We were like, how does that, how does it even get the whiffs though and get hit like that? Like, it's just so not linear at all. Cause like, usually like you get swings and misses, you don't get hit. He's doing the swing and miss thing, but getting hit very difficult to kind of decipher what's exactly going on there. But I'll take the positives there. Swing and miss stuff. There's always something to work with. It's hard to teach someone to make you miss bats. He's doing that at least. Yeah. It's a conundrum for sure. And I look back at them. At the Stuff Plus model, Eno Sarah's a Stuff Plus model on Fangraphs, and his slider had the best rating it had in any start this season. And the changeup was moving up as well, okay. and the sinker was moving up as well. Also had an extra inch of fade on it. So I don't know. I didn't, don't know what the change was, but just seeing some little things happening is something to keep an eye on. Before we talk about the offense, how about a little Sean Reed Foley love too? We've been talking about him the last few episodes. Just looks like he might be like a pretty good arm in this bullpen. We talk about like getting creative with relievers and and getting guys out here who've got a little little gas, a little heat, a little fire under their uh, you know in their heart. Sean Reed Foley's got that. He comes out screaming every single time. He's a little crazy, but he's looked great so far. Yeah, worst case scenario, Sean Reed Foley thinks he's the best player in the field at all times. I like that energy. As a reliever, yes. you kind of need that little bit of dog in you, that kind of craziness to keep to stay hot every single outing. But he hasn't given up a run in five innings bench since he came back up, and he's striking out nearly 50% of the hitters he's facing. And I just talked about Stuff Plus. Again, it's a free model. It's on fan graphs. It kind of gives you a score for every single pitcher. Driveline has their own. Some other people who do pitch modeling have their own, and fan graphs comes from you know, Saris, who's writer for The Athletic. Sean Reed Foley's fastball, slider, and changeup are all well above average by Stuff Plus. He's become, based on Stuff nice. Plus, the Mets, one of the Mets' best relievers this entire season. And he's also throwing a whole mile an hour harder than he ever has in his career. So looks like there might be something with Sean Reed Foley. And it's funny talking about this guy two years later, but it's like he's back and there is something here and he's still under contract. Yeah, he will be a Met. Uh, well, he's under contract with the Mets until 2027, the 2027 offseason. So there's a lot of control over him. Looking for the future uh, bullpen arms here. I think Sean Reed Foley is probably going to be sticking around for a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And then back to the offense. Said it out loud. I was like, oh, Luis Castillo. Mets are going to really struggle to hit him. And Mark was like, no, the Mets are definitely going to hit Castillo today. And the Mets smacked Luis Castillo around for one of his worst starts of literally the entire season. Mar- uh, the Mariners did get on to a lead early. Like I said before, they got four runs off of Peterson. But DJ Stewart, the man, the myth, the legend, had a big three-run home run in the fourth, tied the game. He's got the fifth-highest WRC Plus in baseball since August 1st. He's only behind Julio Rodriguez, Mookie Betts, Bryce Harper, and Marcelo Zuna. I was watching a video by a YouTuber called And That's Baseball the other day, and he was talking about Linsanity runs in baseball. So you have, like, Yermin Mercedes had a crazy one. Uh Matt Shoemaker had like a crazy little stretch where he was like a dominant pitcher. Even David Freeze's like World Series run, which was incredible. Like the Linsanity runs of baseball. DJ Stewart's on a little bit of a Linsanity run here since August 15th. Like two weeks, he's been one of the best hitters in all baseball. That Matt Shoemaker all, all, April run, I'll never forget that. And then he immediately got hurt right <laughs> after that. I was like, wow, Matt Shoemaker's are 97 miles an hour. Grabbed him on every fantasy team. I felt like the smartest guy in the world. And I was like, oh, Matt Shoemaker blew out his arm. That stinks. But. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a good bit. I like that YouTube video. But DJ Stewart definitely is on one of those right now. This Linsanity run has already taken him to a higher F war than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. on the entire season, which is something that, you know, we can hang our hats on because Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is supposed to be one of the best, like, basically players in baseball. And DJ Stewart has been more valuable than him in a month, yeah. and he's been all season. There's not that many hitters hitting better than DJ Stewart right now. It got to the point where on Sunday, 
the Mariners are making pitching changes. So lefties come in to face DJ Stewart because of, because of how much of a power hitter he is. And hopefully you guys listen to our interview with him. If not, go back and check it out because DJ Stewart is like basically a bit of a Forrest Gump in terms of baseball and sports stories in general. Knew, knew Derrick Henry growing up, beat him in high school football, college teammates with, uh, with Jameis Winston, told some stories about him. Also played AAU ball with Hayden Hurst before he also switched to football full-time. Played with Buckshaw Walter in the Orioles before coming over to the Mets now. Just had the baby. He's had some great stories about that. He's a deer hunter. Him and his wife deer hunt together. The guy is super interesting. Really good interview with DJ Stewart. So go back and check that out. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, like Castillo, like weirdly, I'm looking at his career stats now. Has struggled against the Mets in his career. He's made four starts, 24 innings. He has a 4-4 ERA with a whip at like 1-5. He just kind of gives up home runs against the Mets. Six home runs in those 24 innings against the Mets. So whatever, I mean, a lot of it probably had to do because it, playing in Cincinnati for most of it too. And that's just like the easiest place to hit a home run really. Yeah. But uh, yeah, let's, let's have Castillo's number a little bit. And uh, Mark Vientos, our guy, Marky V, knocking Castillo out with another bomb to right center field, which the power there is, the power of Vientos we've always known is so legit, so true. It's just about consistently getting it. But being able to hit it out there like John Texas, just doesn't really happen too much. You don't see a lot of guys doing that. No, and that he said four home runs this year with the Mets. The one, the first one that went against the Rays was just barely on the pull side of center field for him. And all three of his other ones were all basically in that exact same power alley in right center field. This home run travel projected distance of 438 feet, which is the 10th longest home run hit by a Met this season, which is pretty cool for a guy like Mark Vianto, especially off a pitcher like Luis Castillo. And now he has home runs this year off of Aroldis Chapman, Luis Castillo, a double off Felix Batista. It's like, all right, well, maybe, maybe he just needs to like step up when the real pitchers are on the mound. That's how Mark Vianto is going to start getting hot here. And then, after they made the pitching change, Francisco Lindor put one right down the line, right where we've been sitting the last couple of games. So it would have been yes. nice if we could have been sitting there for, for that home run, getting the spot on TV. But just bang, bang off the foul pole, cut the lead to one, and this was suddenly a pretty exciting baseball game. Yeah, no, I mean, it was really nice to see because, like, we, again, we're flipping between college football and, and the Mets, and all of a sudden on the Mets, we're like, oh, this, this game is completely back because, as we know, Grant Hartwig came in, came out for a second inning, kind of got in some trouble, some runs came in, the lead got a little bit bigger than we would have liked. I think, like you said, it got to 7-4, but then that Lindor home run tied it up, and then McNeil as well with that triple late in the game. I mean, how does that ball not get out of the park? I mean, Jeff was, um, what's the right word, but, like, I can't think of it. I can't think of the word, but he got he got it today. He got it today with the home run. You know yeah, what I'm talking about? I can't even comprehend what you're thinking of. Angry? Upset? These are just Jeff no. Words it's almost like up. he got repaid. Like they they gave it back to him. He was redeemed. Redeemed. Yeah, redeemed. That's the word. There it is. Yeah, he got redemption uh, in game three. But can't believe that ball didn't go out. Still good to see Jeff swinging the bat though, swinging for a little bit more power as well. Definitely. And another multi-hit game with the home run, like you mentioned on Sunday. Also three hard-hit balls on Sunday. Just got that OPS way over 800 since August 1st. WRC plus over 120. It's Jeff McNeil that we've all come to know and expect. And it's nice to see him again. Like, very big deal for these guys. We see how much how big competitors they are. We see how much emotion is still in every single game. Just getting hot to end the season. A guy like Jeff McNeil, it changes so much of what happens going into next year. When you can end the season feeling like the player that you know you are. And that was a good moment. Right after that, though, sadly, J.P. Crawford had a very big home run for the Mariners to give them the lead, a lead that they would hold on to the end of the game. Also just want to like get in the soapbox with JP Crawford real quick. He has become absolutely one of the most, I'll, I'll say important players in baseball for any team in the league, playing shortstop every day for his Mariners team, being a leader, being there for a long time. Kyle Seeger talked about when he retired that like as a guy who spends a whole career with the organization, that next leader was JP Crawford. Like he was the oh, guy who said that. Yes. That he was the guy growing wow. into that role. And you've seen a guy like Crawford who you kind of see Guys were top prospects sometimes. J.P. Crawford had a moment where he was number one overall prospect in baseball. And then they come up. 
Yes. And they come up to the major leagues and don't really excel right away or even at all. Sometimes you see that kind of be a burden on guys and you see that almost work kind of productively for them where it, that prospect status hurts them. They fall, they feel the pressure, they fold under it and they kind of just get taken up by a media storm. They never become the player everyone expect them to be. But right now, JP Crawford's got a 140 WRC plus. He has almost the same amount of walks to strikeouts. He has a, by far a career high 14 homers already with a power surge happening as he gets through September. Could be in line for his first 20 home run season where he never even hit 10 in a full season before. 270 average, 390 on base, 440 slug. And again, just being a steadying force for this Mariners team day in and day out, being in the lineup every single day, top of the order, hitting ahead of Julio Rodriguez. And the organization loves him. He says all the right things. He does all the right things. J.P. Crawford's a really good player and someone that I feel like you can all look around baseball and be like, that's one of the guys who makes the game great. No, very, very solid baseball player. And took some some impressive BP, too, when we were on the field for game one. Really impressive BP. Really, really wish I would have taken, uh, thought about that before the game began. Yeah, no, didn't uh, didn't expect to see that, honestly, either. Because, like, I'd, I'd seen how good of a season he's been having. But I was like, ah, he still doesn't really, like, crush the baseball. Like, he's still just, just, like, he's still good. There's no doubt he's been a good player this year. But I was like, I'm just waiting for, like, that what makes him cool. He's a little boring, but he's been he's been exactly what they needed. He's been great this year. Yeah, and he's a guy who takes his own development into his own hands. He spent the last couple off seasons at driveline. He's talked about using weighted bats to make like just getting his power up. And you see it, when it happens like this, and you see it so starkly in the season, you're yeah. like, oh man, like a lot of this development when guys like use this advanced stuff and these training methods, it really really works. Yeah, data and science. It's always good to have more of that. Yeah, it's great. And then move on to game three, rubber game of the series. You know, it felt, felt like the good old days where the Mets won game one, lost game two. Yeah. And we, were, we were on to a Sunday game three where you have a chance to like, you know, put the team down. And I'll tell you guys again, Tyler McGill did some really encouraging things. He had just a crystal clean first three and two thirds innings before so clean. Dominic Canzone. It was a Buckeye. Go Bucks. Dominic Canzone, the big series, big series here for the Mariners. One, one Buckeye had a good weekend at least. And Mike Ford, Princeton guy. So, you know, those are two of the most esteemed universities in the whole country, Ohio State and Princeton, <laughs> going back to back for some home runs there. A little but, different, I think, but I, I think one in the same. You're right. Ohio State's probably a little a little bit better at sports and Princeton might be a little bit better in the classroom. But I think, <laughs> interesting. I think, interesting. I think interesting spin. I, I think we're splitting hairs, but Tylerman then battled back through the fifth after, again, we talked about before, the very slick double play, one hot pick off a Julio bullet from Lindor, then Ronnie with a seed to first. Got to the sixth inning, came out when Brooks Raley came in to face a lefty, but five and a third, five hits, three earned, two walks, six strikeouts, and 16 whiffs tied Tyler McGill's season high. Very encouraging. Very encouraging. And, like, you see with him, like, there, there clearly is a point in the game where all of a sudden, like, things get a little bit tougher. And him being able to get through that, like, when he gave up those home runs to Canzone and Ford, I was like, oh, boy, yeah. here we go. Like, this is this is about to go south really quickly. I thought it was just kind of snowballing and an av- avalanche was about to happen. But he battled through it. And like you said, to get that five and a third, to get those 16 whiffs, he was throwing 96, I think, pretty consistently in this game. When you talked about it last episode, how important it is for him to essentially be throwing 96 with that fastball completely changes his outlook as a pitcher. All stuff that is really, really encouraging signs for Tyler McGill, who without a doubt struggled this year at points. Yes, and something else Tyler McGill did in this game that we talked about his last start in the Rangers series where the velocity did dip after about 65 or 70 pitches, and you saw the Mariners really taking some hacks when that happened through the fourth and fifth innings. But then his last three fastballs of the game were three of his four hardest of the entire game. And he was able to rear back and get those important outs in the sixth inning when his pitch count was climbing. That's a really cool thing with Tyler McGill, a guy we talked about last time. So much of what he does effectiveness-wise is going to be based on his velocity. And the fact that he can rear back and find that velocity when things got tight and things got tough is cool. Because especially in this game, fastballs and sliders made up over 80% of all the pitches he threw, which is kind of where he usually sits. But there was a little bit more 
of a slider lean in this game. The fastball velocity overall was over 95 again. That's now every single start since he came back from AAA. His average fastball velocity has been over 95 miles an hour, and it got seven whiffs. But the slider came in much hotter than it has most starts this year. He's been throwing it harder with a little bit less drop his last couple of starts. I think that's been a big adjustment for him because now in two of those last three starts with a slider velocity has ticked up a few miles an hour, it's gotten eight whiffs. The slider alone has gotten eight whiffs, and those tied those two for his most whiffs he's gotten with the slider in any start this year. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yeah, no, I mean, and the Mets chased George Kirby out of the game too, which helped. Like, the offense just kind of kept going this entire game. George Kirby, arguably one of the worst starts he's made of the year, someone who's been so great this season. Yeah, he also probably might be a little hurt. He was pushed back, and then his velocity really tailed off as this game went on. And he's a guy who's been one of the most impressive pitchers in the entire American League, but just didn't really look like he had everything he always has today. Still didn't walk anybody because George Kirby just doesn't walk people ever. That's kind of his whole thing. It's pretty amazing. He almost would probably do a little bit better with just like walking a couple more guys, but no, I'm not going to tell George Kirby how to pitch. He still does great. The results are incredible, but we did chase him early. A big reason for that was Pete Alonso, drove Francisco yep. Lindoran in the first inning, and then hit his 40th home run of the year a few innings later. And he also had a second home run in this game. So after this game, he's at four homers, 100 RBIs. He's now the fifth player in baseball history to ever hit 40 home runs three times in the first five years, joining Ryan Howard, Albert Pujols, Ralph Kiner, and Eddie Matthews. Oh, and one of those four year, five years for Pete, it was only a 60-game shortened season due to the pandemic. <laughs> so Pete really only had four years to do this. And the one time he didn't do it, it was 37 home runs. He was right there, sniffed yeah, it. Yeah, and he, he was on pace with all those guys too as well of like – keeping up with like just the home run counting numbers as well. Like I think Pete's at like 180, somewhere Six. in the 180s. Like 188, yeah. 187. And I want to say like Pujols was at like 220 something. And that was with a full year where Pete Alonso missed because he, the, the COVID year. So like he's on track to be one of the better home run hitters we've seen just Ever. in baseball in general. Like he will go down as a historic home run hitter. Everyone remembers how good Ryan Howard was. And like his career was a little bit shorter than like some of the great home run hitters. But prolific power continues to show it just such a stud so happy he's on the Mets every single time like what 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 a great guy what an awesome player to have ridiculous and even just to talk about context of the Mets history because the Mets are not an organization that's really been known for power hitters and just talking about how rare a guy like Pete Alonso probably is his 340 home run season ties every single Met ever for 40 home run (laughs) seasons only four ever it was a Beltran season a Daryl season, and I think the, the famous Todd Hundley season, I believe, were the yes. other three 40 home run seasons in Mets history. So just to show you guys how incredible Pete is in historical context, how far ahead of almost every other player who's ever played this game, as well as every other player who's ever put on the Met jersey, how good Pete Alonzo is. And it just you know, seems like a great guy to have around. Oh, 100%. Super happy he's on my team and not anybody else's team, and I, I hope he's around for a long time. And then Talking about the rest of this game here, Dominic Leone. Thank God we scored a run off of him. I just <laughs> needed that for my soul. He like evaded us with the Angels. He hasn't left the city of New York in seemingly a month, it seems like, with the Angels being there. And then he gets cut and he gets uh, sent to the Mariners now. But I'm glad that my boy Jeff, friend of the podcast, was able to put one out against Dominic Leone. Really made me smile for a couple different reasons. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And shout out Brooks Raley in this game. So we mentioned Tyler McGill coming out for lefty. Brooks Raley came in after his worst outing of the year and got five outs on 21 pitches. Really good. Trevor Gott has been warming up every single night. He had a clean inning, and then Adam Alavino nailed down the save. And, yep, another win for the Mets. Also, shout out Brett Beatty. Two hard hit balls. One hit to show for it, but no one quit on Brett Beatty. And a phenomenal play at third base. Yes. On Julio Rodriguez, one of the fastest players in the league. A little slow chopper, bare hand play, throw. Got him out. Julio was shocked. He turned around and was like, whoa. It's a pretty, it's pretty impressive play. Like to throw me out, I'm so fast. That was must have done something. He's got a great arm, Brett Beatty at third base. Super strong arm. Glad to see that he was uh making the plays out in the field. And also shout out Ronnie Mauricio, stealing bases as well. Got two stolen bases in this series. And he also continued to hit, just keeps on hitting. He was one for four in this game, but he was started off, I think, like four for five after game two, and I think yep. five for six going into the yep. uh, game three. So Ronnie Mauricio, that dude can hit. That dude can hit. Just saying he's pretty good. Yeah, and also pretty fun. Like every every team in baseball at every single level, you're like, oh, the bottom of the other is the bottom of the other. But looking at the bottom of the other, been like, oh, Mauricio Bay the Alvarez. Okay, that's fun. I like that. Yes. All three of them got a knock on Sunday. Hell yeah. Love to hear that. Love to hear that. Good win for the Mets. And of course, you guys know when the Mets win a series, who won the estimate, James? It was Ju- uh, Julio Rodriguez hits. And how many did he get? He got three, I guess four. Mark guessed one. So that's another victory for me. Just tacking one on. Took the lead again. And also, we, I believe, have a winner for the. DJ Stewart contest, right? That we ran yes, on Twitter we last week. Do yes, and his name was. Oh man, where did I put it? Did I did I click off of his Twitter? Oh, oh here it is. Okay, mystic. yeah, it is at baseball underscore mystic. Seems to be really interested in the Mets giveaways, and he got this one uh, as close as possible. There was a couple one hundred eight point threes in there, but DJ Stewart hit the ball one hundred eight point eight miles an hour, and the baseball mystic guessed one hundred nine point two. So just ever so slightly closer. It was a 0.1 difference here. So the Baseball Mystic will reach out to you on our Twitter to get all your information and get you that DJ Stewart ball. For this estimate, of course, John is not here with us, so he can't brag about uh, his his bet win against James, but he did send us an estimate, and of course, it makes a lot of sense. Ronnie Mauricio to two-game series against the Nationals. What's the hardest hit ball Ronnie's going to have? Oh, man. Has anyone ever hit the ball 137 miles an hour? Well, who's he going up against pitching-wise? Because that might change how I feel, too. Like, if we get Trevor Williams, (laughs) we might see a little something special from Ronnie. Also, only a two-game series, so keep that in mind. It's going to be probably only, you know, eight, nine at-bats for Ryan Mauricio, eight, nine nine shots to get this. So, pitching matchups for the Mets in this series, as they are on ESPN right now. Okay. We're going to be facing, okay, this is interesting, two lefties. Jose Quintana versus Mackenzie Gore. And then Wednesday is an open spot for the Mets. It's a good chance that's like, that could be what Jose Booth has been saved for. Maybe a piggyback with Carlos Carrasco versus Patrick Corbin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Man. We didn't see him. Take we know he can hit it 117 hacks. miles an hour. Yeah. yeah. Huh. All right. Oh, man. I'm thinking. I got and a number. I don't, I don't have my whiteboard, but I got a number. I'm, I'm going to write down for a second. Also, if there's no, if there's no batted ball by Ronnie Mauricio, it's null and void. Just Correct. Saying. Yes. I yes. think we'll say in a two game series, it's null and void. Yes. So as you're writing down your number, I'm thinking, I'm thinking where I'm going and I, I like where my head's at. The guy hits the ball so hard, so hard. And again, it doesn't have to be for a hit. Just he could hit it 125 miles an hour into the ground. That's the hardest hit ball of the series for him. So yes, I James, got my number. you got your number. Yes. I got my number two. Ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. 112.3 miles an hour. So Ooh, 108. 108.9. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Those are both hard hit baseballs. We know we can do it. Yeah. I'm just, 
don't know. I feel like just seeing how comfortable he was lefty, I'm assuming he can't be that comfortable righty. Maybe he's more comfortable righty. I don't really know. But just two lefty starters. I went a little low. We'll see, we'll see what he gets. Well, we do know, though, the ball flies a little bit in Washington, especially as we get a little bit later into the summer. And we know it's going to be a hot week, at least in New York. I don't know what right. it's going to be like in Washington, D.C., but it can't be that different. It's not no. that far away. <laughs> it can't be much cooler either. I just think it's going to be hot and humid all over the place this week. But the Mets do have an off day Monday heading down there for the series beginning on Tuesday. Quick little two-game series. I feel like the Mets always find themselves in Washington this time of year. We, we know the series that crushed all of us, broke all of our hearts, but always always a little something this time of year. And then we're, we're sticking with the American League next week and going to Minnesota for the, one of the most obscure series I've ever seen the Mets play in, in Minnesota, September 8th, 9th, and 10th. But I told you Did the you pitching matchups. Did you catch the uh, twin sign, by the way? Yeah, your boy, former national, Andrew no, Stevenson. Your boy, your boy too. Everybody's boy, boy Andrew yeah. Stevenson. Matt Killer, famous Matt Killer. But... We know this national team has been thorn in our sides all year. We also know we're incredibly close in standings as national team. So it would just feel nice to beat them a few times and just be clear of them and not have to think about, you know, coming in last place. But I digress. They're they're still a very fun team. CJ Abrams has been a hot headed this year, but he's Can you hear that stuff in the background? No, you're f- I mean like you can hear it, but you're fine. You're good. All right, just the streets of Brooklyn making some noise, whatever. CJ Abrams had a very good year, especially relative to what people expected. He's been a little cold recently, but he's been picked up by the man hitting second in that order, Lane Thomas. <laughs> you just have nonstop <laughs> sirens for the, it's the end of the podcast. So you can do it. You you work through it. This is adversity. This will make you a better podcaster. It's a holiday weekend in Europe. The, street, the streets are active right now. So there's music going on. There's bachata below my window. There's a siren coming down, blaring down the street. There's a lot going on. But Nationals, they're pesky. They put the ball in play. Mackenzie Gore, he is much better against the Mets than basically every other team in the league. Patrick Gorbin is not so good against any team in the league. That's another guy that Pete Alonso takes advantage of, so hopefully we can get to like 43, 44 home runs by the end of the series. It's really all we got on them. They just got smoked in the series against the Marlins, got the Marlins hot for the first time in a while. I'm struggling in the fantasy playoff matchup. I had to start Kyle Finnegan because my Felix Bautista and Kyle, Nick Pavetta got moved to the bullpen, and Cutter Crawford was facing the Astros this week. He did not have a very good week for me after, after having a very good month. So I don't know if I'm going to start next week against the Mets. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm really racking my brain about it. I'm not excited to make that decision. Yeah, some other names to keep an eye out for. Uh, Travis Blankenhorn. He's, yeah. he's with the Nationals, former Met. Travis Blankenhorn, how old is he? 29. 26. He's younger than wow. us. All right. Let's hang out with Travis. I'll couldn't, hang out with Travis. Couldn't have, guessed, couldn't have guessed any. Give me a million guesses. I never think he was younger than us. But I guess we're just getting old, maybe. That's where we're trying to learn here. But Travis Blankenhorn, and then a former top prospect as well, back up with them as the roster's expanded, Carter Kibu. And he's actually been playing decently well. Somebody keep an eye out for, too, because I think he's pretty much playing third base every day now. Yeah, he is. He actually is kind of weirdly finding it again. He's also, imagine this, he's also 26 years old. Yeah. Same age. I, 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 that one made more sense. So I, that one I wasn't as surprised about. But yeah, Caber Ruiz has been great. Lane Thomas. You guys know we've seen the Nationals enough. There's not there's not too much to talk about with them, right? I mean, no, I think really that's a good isn't. place for us to probably just say enough of the Nationals talk. Let's wrap this one up here. Yeah, I think it's also Joey Baseball, Joey Manessis also had a very good second half, really affirming himself as a major league ball player. There you go. Good for you, Joey Manessis, a guy that we dogged big time when we were on our way to Washington last year. We're like, who is playing first base? He's ended up being a pretty good ball player. What a massive regret that trip turned out to be. 
Oh, yeah, big time. All right. Well, anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening and watching this episode of the Mets Up podcast. Remember to follow us on all our social media at Mets Up on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Again, we're going to have a Kodai Senga interview coming out this week, as well as DJ Stewart is already on the New York Mets YouTube channel, as well as our feed. So make sure you're subscribed over there so you don't miss out on that. If you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review. We do appreciate you guys doing that. Follow James on Twitter at James underscore Shiano. And me, Giraffe Neck Mark with a C. Thank you guys for listening and watching, and we'll catch you after the very, very short Washington National Series. Peace out. Peace out. See you guys next time.